Hey, Typology Tribe, Ian Cron here, host of the podcast on which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. And I am here with my great friend, musician, singer-songwriter, author, among other things, world traveler, Andrew Peterson. Hey. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Good to be with you. It's always good to be with you. Enneagram 4. One of my favorite songwriters on the planet. That's legit. So I want to immerse everybody in Andrew's talent. So uh, I'm going to ask you to start by singing a song uh, that is very Enneagram 4. Very much so. Do you you want me to say anything about it or just play the song? Yeah, go for it. So I I wrote the song. I'm trying to think. The shortest version of this story about the song is that about 15 some odd years ago, I, I would kind of slammed into... Uh, dark night of the soul and was pretty mad at God about it and felt pretty alone. And a friend of mine, uh, would take a yearly retreat to the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. And, uh, and he said, you're in a bad spot. Why don't you go and take my slot? And I said, well, no, I can't do that. You know, because, uh, they've got your name is that I'd be breaking the rules. And he was like, no, just lie to the monk and tell him that you're me. And so I'm a pastor's kid. That excited me tremendously. <laughs> the, the thought of, of lying to monks uh, was thrilling. So I was like, okay, I'll go. And I, I went and spent three days. And uh, during my time there, I in, encountered uh, this statue of Jesus praying in the garden, which is at the end of a pretty decent hike through the woods. And it was January, freezing cold outside. Uh, I was all alone. It was dawn. And I, I was... Uh, like as alone as I think I've ever felt before. And I happened upon the statue of the incarnated Christ kneeling in anguish in the garden, uh, um, about to drink the cup of like ultimate aloneness, you know? And, uh, and it just like stopped me in my tracks. And I was, um, like it was the closest that I've ever come to like, I think an epiphany, like I had never felt so profoundly comforted, um, than that moment. And, uh, it just, it changed my whole, the way I saw suffering forever. So here's the song I wrote about. It's enough to drive a man crazy It will break a man's faith It's enough to make him wonder If he's ever been seen When he's bleeding for comfort From thy staff and thy rod And the heaven's only answer Is the silence of God And it'll shake a man's timbers When he loses his heart When he has to remember What broke him apart And this yoke may be easy But this burden is not When the crying fields are frozen By the silence of God And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob Who are 
throes of all the happiness they've got when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross well then what about the times when even followers get lost because we all get lost sometimes well there's a statue of jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of kentucky all quiet and cold and he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone and all his friends are sleeping and he's weeping all alone and the man of all sorrows he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought so when the questions dissolve into the silence of god the aching may remain but the breaking does not the aching may remain but the breaking does not in the holy lonesome echo of the silence of God mm. You know that's um, <clears throat> that is one of my favorite songs of yours man thank you maybe that's because i'm a four on the enneagram too and that immersion that sort of um transcendent um feeling that that song has you know and but also it it really does capture what the interior landscape of an enneagram four is like really oh my gosh yeah that feeling of uh, bereftness, the feeling of uh, abandonment, mm-hmm. of loss, um, the the voice crying out in the wilderness, mm-hmm. but also the desire to give voice to it, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think what I just experienced, and I think what many people experience when when they hear your music, and I have seen you perform many times, is the uh, the feeling that someone else is saying what they have always felt but mm. did not know how to say. And that's the gift of force. Mm. That, that in many ways is the gift of force is they are able to help people navigate the dark straits that they don't understand, that they either deny in themselves mm-hmm. that they exist uh, or they don't know how to navigate them. And I think a four comes alongside them and says, Follow me. I I know how to be here. Yeah, it's it's crazy to hear that, all that because <clears throat> I uh, where were you 15 years ago when I wrote that song? No, uh, it, it was like <laughs> I, I I didn't know. You know, I didn't know what to do with all of this stuff, and and that that sense of aloneness was uh, profound, and it still is actually. You know, there's a lot of times I walk into a situation just feeling like I'm the weirdo in the room, and um, 
but when I think about the music that has moved me the most over the years and the books that I love the most, it's, it's always that it's the feeling. That's why I love Frederick Buechner. Mm. It's like he was, he was saying things that I'd always felt, but I didn't, didn't know how to articulate, you know? And so that makes a ton of sense. And I hear that a lot at concerts mm. that, that that's, that's what people resonate with. So what you're saying is that what I just said wasn't special and unique. Um, yes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> is, is this podcast over? Are we finished? You're just, you just brought a <laughs> that's a wrap. knees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear that all the time, Ian. <laughs> yeah. I'm so tired of hearing people say that all the pedestrian no. people say that, no, that I'm about to hurt it's myself. Always, it's always wonderful to hear. It really is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so how did you get, if, you know, I know that for a while, I mean, I know the story a little bit, but I'd love to have you, pe- you share with people how, how you, you first came to know about the Enneagram mm-hmm. and what, how you responded to it. <laughs> That's, it's pretty funny. I, I was on, it was Jill Phillips, I think was the first time I heard about it. Have, has she been on this podcast yes. before? Mm-hmm. So Jill is a dear old friend and uh, we do this Christmas tour every year. And uh, the Christmas tour is, a con- it's not just my tour, it's a community thing. I'm kind of the ringleader, but it's like lots of artists on this tour. And, and uh, the, there's this real f- wonderful family vibe on the bus. It's always, the, a bus sleeps 12 people, tour bus. Um, and we usually have 13 people on the tour. Mm. Uh, it's just jam-packed with friends. And, um, and so one of the best things about touring with a bus is the hang after the show. You get on the bus and everybody's talking and the work is done for the day and you're rolling to the next city. It's just like the, the dream, you know. And inevitably, we would be having some great conversation about something, movie, some movie that came out or whatever. And then somebody would bring up the Enneagram and then the whole room would talk about the Enneagram for the next five hours. And uh, and I just kind of got tired of, of how everybody else was leaning into this thing. And they would say, what number are you, Andrew? And I'd be like, Wh- whatever number hates the Enneagram. And they, and they, <laughs> and they would all say, four. Is that does that jive with you? Sure, it yeah. does because fours want to be special and unique, right. and they exactly they hate the idea that there are other people out there who feel what they feel. Well, for me, it's like it's I I recognize now that I know a little bit about it. I recognize all the way back to high school. Anytime everybody else was into something, I would find reasons to not be into it. Yep. Oh man, do you? Do this thing where if like people are all talking about a movie or a book, oh, it's so awesome, it's so great. You're like, I'm not reading it. I'm not going to see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. My my knee jerk is to not see it. I'm better than I used to be about it. Now I'm I'm learning to kind of lean in a little mm-hmm. bit. But oh man, there's a huge pattern of that. Because like, you'd whatever. be ordinary, right? It's it's like I don't want to be ordinary like everybody. Why are you being else? so mean this early on in the podcast? <laughs> Where? <laughs> Why are you poking a stick in my wound? No, uh, there, there is, it's fascinating. That was in fact the, when, so all that to say, I heard about the Enneagram for years and avoided it, you know, just because I was just like, oh man, we got to talk about this thing again. And the thing that warmed me up to it, there were two things that warmed me up to it. And one was, uh, as a fiction writer, I was, I started to wonder, I wonder how much better I would be at character if I had a real understanding of of if I could, it was fluent in Enneagram. So that's why I read your book. I remember thinking, Oh yeah, I'm going to read this book and kind of like, see if I can get my head around that and see like in the books that the, the novels I've written in the past, like um, I wonder if I could peg a number on some of these people and kind of uh, were, were the characters round enough for me to, to kind of understand that kind of nuance. Anyway, that w- it was a very practical uh, consideration. And at the same time, my daughter, Sky, who I've talked to her about this, she doesn't mind me sharing it, but she and I are very much alike, uh, the way our hearts are wired. And, um, I, she was, um, kind of going through a, a t- between 12 and now even 
her heart is just this like um, pretty intense fire. Like mm. she feels things really deeply. I feel things really deeply. There are times when she doesn't know what to do with it all. And uh, so, she, so I started asking myself, I wonder if it would help my daughter know her own heart if she looked into this and if it would help me know how to love her better. If I So the, a combination of those two things had me read The Road Back to You. And when I got to the four chapter, I just started bawling. Mm. And I, I did the thing where I, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of like this. I'm kind of like this. And by the time it circled around to four, I just that stick. And it was that stuff. It was this uh, the the talk about. You know, the feeling of the ache to belong Mm. at at war with the feeling of like protecting myself by pulling back and being unique because I'm afraid I'll be rejected somehow or whatever. I was like, oh, my goodness, that's actually uh, describes my experience on the Christmas tour deeply. And I I hope it's okay that I talk about this, um, which is a great thing to say if you want people to really lean in. Um, (laughs) I just realized. But the Christmas tour was really difficult for me for years. And it it was weird because it was, um, it was, hmm, I don't know if this is germane to the conversation, but I'm just going to tell you, you can edit it out of your own. But the, uh, but I would go dark every single year on the Christmas tour. And um, I didn't know why. It felt very much like it was a spiritual attack. Um, people would be praying for me. I would be on the road surrounded by the people who were dearest to me, um, like um, in this community. And I uh, would inevitably just like find myself just cr- crying on the floor of a closet or in the back of the tour bus without knowing why. And, um, and it took a long time, a lot of counseling to kind of get to the bottom of why. But part of it was that that ache to belong and um but the but coupled with the feeling that I never will and um the the feeling that everybody else on the tour is awesome um and has so much to offer and I am just the 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 weird one mm-hmm. and I will always be the weird one and it was just weird it was this like it, it like it was like that's the thing that I've always carried but there was something about being on tour on a on a bus this pressure cooker with these wonderful people that, that brought into sharp focus that mm. feeling. And, um, mm. and it, you know, it took a few years of counseling before I was able to like really look forward to being on that bus again. Wow. Mm. And I do now. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, as a four, uh, really resonate mm. with that struggle. I, that feeling of, um, some kind of unnameable deficiency that I carried Mm -hmm. that left me or rendered me unworthy of love and relationship. And then when I'm with people, I compare myself to them Mm -hmm. and always come up short. And I I look at them and I think they just seem so much, so, so Mm well-adjusted, so happy, so comfortable in their own skin. And you know, a solution for me for many years was drugs and alcohol. It mm. was really the only way I could feel more at home in my skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do. And when you look at the list of famous fours or what, who we speculate are fours, a lot of their lives did not end well. Mm. Whether it's Sylvia Plath or Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse or, and the list goes on, right? Yeah. And I think the surfeit of feelings that fours feel sometimes there, there aren't enough songs. There aren't enough dances. There aren't enough works of art that can be created to express the overwhelming amount of feelings. And they, they just 
self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, of course, that's the danger of what happens with a four when they're not doing their work. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, how do you treat people when you're in that space? Like, what does it do to your relationships? <laughs> uh, it's not the best version of myself, uh, for sure. I think, um, how do I treat people when I'm in that state? I, I, in the moment, um, I avoid them. Mm-hmm. You I withdraw. Just, oh, big time. Yeah. I, and it took me a while. So I was going to say a minute ago, and I don't know if you resonate with this, but when I replay the stories, the conversations in my head or whatever thing happened that set me off, I'm always the villain in my own story. Yes. I, I always end up being, it's always my fault. And, uh, and I find myself always apologizing to the other person for the thing. And you know, it's not always true. I mean, I know sometimes I have been, I have been the jerk in the situation, but there's sometimes where I'm like, we both need to apologize for something, don't we? And, uh, but I'm more than willing to take on all of the blame, not out of some holy thing, but just because it's easier for me to be, to beat myself up than to, than to not. And so, uh, anyway, so yeah, that's my big thing is one of the, the ways that I've found, and I don't know how like being an introvert plays into all of this kind of stuff, but on the Christmas tour, I found that if I could just be alone for five or six hours at the beginning of the day, I, I love being alone and, uh, kind of, <laughs> I'm going to expose one of my little touring secrets. Um, but the, what I would do, the thing that made it easiest for me to be around my friends and the, and, and the people at the show, you know, and, um, after the show, all the, the meet and greet stuff later, it was, um, I would get off the bus, brush my, or brush my teeth, get off the bus looking like, you know, I'd just been run over by a truck and I would stagger into the church and I would find the nicest looking person who worked at the church. And I would say, hi, my name's Andrew. Can I borrow your car for a few hours? <laughs> and they would all be always be like, oh, um, <laughs> Actually, yeah, let me go get my stuff out of it. Here you go. And they would hand me their keys and I would get in the car and feel like I had just like won the lottery. Wow. And I, whatever town I was in, I would drive to the nearest used bookstore or wherever. Like if, if there was a state park nearby, I'd go and I would just wander and uh, and come back ready to go. Um, because I just kind of like, and I, I think it was a, a time of like, not just like heart restoration, but I could, I talked to the Lord a lot of that. You know, I was able to kind of like air my grievances and ask for help and and then show up and be ready to go. You know, at the risk of violating your uh, self-perception, especially. Oh, I can't wait. uh, So (laughs) but you just described my life. Really? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like like when I'm traveling and like you, sometimes I'm in a room with thousands of people and uh, it's overwhelming to me and I can look like it's not in the moment. I look like, you know, I'm doing my thing, but I'm always sort of the loneliest extrovert in the room Mm. uh, because I have a very strong introverted side as well. And I just, there's a certain point at which I have got to get out of here. And it's not because I don't love these people. Mm -hmm. I, I I deeply love all these people, but I have sort of hit this wall where I am empty. And if I don't get alone, Usually, unfortunately, it's in a hotel room. You right, know? right. But when I hit that hotel room, I and close the door. <sighs> yeah. 
I can read a book. I can, mm-hmm. you know, do whatever. And it's just silent. I just. Yeah, uh, it's uh, marvelous. It is unbelievably yep. great for me. <laughs> and, and, you know, Merton, who, of course, was at the Abbey of Gethsemane, where you wrote that beautiful song, The yep. Silence of God, which to me is ironic. Right. <laughs> I told you the story of my weeping at the grave of Merton. I think so. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane. I went outside to find his, his grave marker and his right. tomb. <clears throat> I went outside and out of nowhere, I just began to weep. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I think it was because I had read all those books for so many years and felt, I think, that Merton would have understood me. Hmm. Uh, and he was a four. Hmm. So we have that, you know, again, it's just how yeah. this, sort of, this sort of thing uh, works. And, and I think um, what you were talking about, you know, obviously the, the withdrawing and uh, the the other thing I identify with, and this is a very four thing, and it's a defense mechanism of force, which is what's called interjection. Every type has a, <laughs> a defense mechanism. And what interjection is, is when we sort of absorb and internalize rather than push away negative experiences and data in the environment. So force okay. literally take on the blame for whatever has gone wrong. Do you do this thing when the phone uh, rings and you see who the call's from? You go, okay, what did I do wrong? Oh, every single time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every single time. I think that I'm in trouble. Yeah. I assume that I'm in trouble. And yeah. that it's all your fault. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's going to be, it's gonna be uh, sort of a critical onslaught, and it's going to decimate you. Yeah. You oh, that's laughing. amazing that you feel that. Like, I, <laughs> so much so. Like, we, I was just telling you that I came to do this podcast from Annie Downs's podcast. She is marvelous. She's a great lady. And I, the whole drive here, I, I, all I could think of was how I had ruined my career by, by being annoying and like telling stories I shouldn't have told and opening up in a way that I shouldn't have because I'm, and then just kind of going like waiting, bracing myself for the inevitable emails that will come that will tell about where people will say, I heard you on the podcast. I'm so disappointed, which has never happened to me. It has never happened. Um, not quite like that before, but I just am, I'm just convinced that like I've ruined everything most of the time. We had a conversation the other night because we were doing a, a book study together with a couple of other uh, good friends mm-hmm. on T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, which could not be more four. It's Yeah, <laughs> it totally is. And it's actually most of us in the room are fours. Yes. Yeah, I think Ben is not, but the rest of the guys are, are fours. And uh, you were talking about how uh, you, like the rest of us fours, uh, we'll go home at night after a show or something like that and just rehearse mm. everything. Yeah. That you, every time, every, every song introduction, everything probably offended or, and here's the big one for me, um, is the fear of letting people down. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. In, in the life I would, of I would, f- I would phrase it as uh, disappointing people. Mm-hmm. Which feels a little sadder than just letting people down. <laughs> like, right. the, that's what I'm most afraid of. Like, where does that come from for you? Um, I don't know. There's there there may be some stuff in my childhood that I could point to. There's a few a few stories that you know I can't really tell, but the, but where I, I go, oh, there's from the beginning. I f- I was um, afraid of disappointing. I'm I, I think there maybe it's a pastor's kid thing that like there's this expectation that you're going to be better than everybody else mm. or that you're going to be better behaved or they're they're more disappointed. Like if I say the S word in junior high, it's a bigger deal than if my friend does because of who my family is, what mm. my dad does for a living. So I would kind of like compensate for that by being even worse. 
like like defying what their expectation and so which you know was a way of self-protecting and i was like i know i'm going to be a disappointment let me see how far i can take that disappointment as a way of just rebelling um and so so i, I went from the s word to like the d word <laughs> right no uh the, that was supposed to be funny anyway the uh but you you disappointed me with that yeah sorry yeah with that humor um joke was no i don't know where it can't like i but it's it's been there as long as i can remember and it, it had a huge effect on my um relationship with god like the way that i mm. saw him i i uh, when i it was it's part of why i think i loved rich mullins's music when i first heard it which pointed me to the ragamuffin gospel the brennan manning book which was what this legalistic terrified preacher's kid needed to kind of begin to believe that God loved me. And uh, the way I've described it before is I always pictured him as a cop following me without his lights on yet. Mm. Um, The feeling of like, I'm not doing anything wrong, but I'm terrified right now um, that I'm about to, um, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. And uh, for a while I was, I used to joke about how I was afraid going through the TSA thing, because what if I do have a bomb? I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I'm a terrorist, you know, but like, but do I don't even own a gun, but what if, what if I forgot that I do? And, you know, I would I have this like movie run through my head of like confessing to everything, you know, like, yeah, I, I did it. I did it. I'm the guy. I'm the guy when I hadn't done anything wrong, you know? Um, so yeah, just caring, which uh, it's easy to see how that translates into like a, a pretty damaged relationship with God, the father, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I'm learning. Well, one of the gifts of the four though, and I think this is a, you know, we all perform a social function. We all have an office, if you will, in, in our lives. And I think the part of the task or the, maybe the errand that, the four is called to run uh, is to write songs or create things that illuminate dimensions of the human person and their experience. But it it comes at a cost Mm. for the four because... um, it involves our having to live and stay in places where we feel things so exquisitely, where they pierce so deeply. Now that can create beautiful songs. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, and I know you know that feeling, that bittersweet feeling, that is both the strange, that bright sadness mm-hmm. of when you're creating something that is taking you and others to the depth of some emotion you feel so useful and so (laughs) alive and yet so uh sad Mm -hmm. and for the brokenness of the world because Mm -hmm. you're so attuned Mm -hmm. what's that how do you shepherd that without it killing you um well i by aiming it away from myself like this the, the 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 difference to me is um the my motivation for sharing what I'm sharing. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it's not just self-expression. It's not just me screaming at at God from the mountaintops. It's, it's actually trying to like, because I believe that commiseration and, um, compassion suffering with is one of the, one of the meanings of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I believe that songs are a kind of incarnation there. It's like, a a piece of art that is made in 
out of love for the people who are going to receive it because you want you want them to not be alone um, ha- stands a chance to be more than just a song it, it stands a chance to be a, a kind of sacrament and so uh, and in that I don't want to make it sound self-important but you know what I mean by mm-hmm. that hopefully that the that if if I'm writing songs to to make the listener my counselor if I'm bleeding on the audience, if I'm working it out in real time on the stage, that's not very helpful. No, it's not at all. And I'm guilty of having done that. You know, I can, with great embarrassment, I look back at some times when I did that. And, um, and I remember Walt Wongren Jr. talking about how, I don't know if you've ever read any of his memoirs, mm-hmm. but they're so good. And he's usually, um, he casts himself as the villain in his own story. He's usually the one with something to learn. Um, and it's in a really healthy way, beautiful way. And uh, I heard him say one time that like if you're if you're a person who's standing on a stage, you you should probably not share your story until you're talking about it in the past tense. Yes. Until mm. it's until you've moved past and you've got enough perspective on it to see how this story can help someone else um, more than yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so for, as a songwriter, that's one thing that I like. It. There have been times when I've thought one of these days I'm probably going to write a song about this, but now is not the time. Or I'll write half the song when I'm in it. And put it aside until I've got some perspective on like what what's really happening, and then I'll finish the thing. Which again is another way of kind of mitigating the fear of disappointing people or saying the wrong thing. As I, one of the reasons that I love songwriting is that I can make sure that I said what I meant to say mm-hmm. in those three and a half minutes. Like mm-hmm. I, I may have to apologize for all the in between stuff, but but for the most part, I'll stand by what what the song says, mm-hmm. and I can hi- kind of not hide behind it, but you know what I mean. I can lean on that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Lots of fours uh, initially uh, think they might be ones. And the reason for that, uh, well, we share a line with ones on the Enneagram. Uh, but one of the reasons is, is because of the inner critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, because we oftentimes tell people, you know, the deal breaker for ones is whether or not they have an inner critic. If they don't have it, they're not a one, mm-hmm. right? But one of the things I, I often tell people is, hey, Fours have a powerful inner critic. Right. It, it's there, I think, to serve a different function, hmm. but but they do have a strong inner critic. I think part of that is that interjection we were talking about. Do you got one? Oh, man, do I ever. <laughs> uh, it's funny, in light of my um, relationship with my daughter, and my sons are both artistic and musical too, um, but I don't think either of them are fours. So she and I have this like kind of, shorthand we can talk about it um i know what she means a lot of the time uh, or i think i do anyway and she uh she's got this she can be pretty hard on herself when she finishes a song she is so frustrated um because she's just like oh it's not as good it's not as good as sandra mccracken or sarah groves her heroes you know and i'm like you're 16 right. like go easy on it and then she'll be like billy eilish is 16 she's always got this like comparison thing and she's envious of the of the talent that these other people have. And I've told her like, make friends with the inner critic. Like that, that critic is part of the talent. It's like, it's, it's when, when somebody hands me a, a manuscript or a, a song and they think that it's awesome, chances are it's probably not very good. But if they hand it to me and there's some, I don't know if this is good. I want it to be great. I've got this like platonic form of the song is floating out there somewhere. And I worked as hard as I could get to, to make it that. And I know that it's short, but maybe it's helpful, whatever. That's when I kind of tune in and I go, okay, this is a person who's got the inner critic um, because that voice to a point is, is one of the things that's going to spur you on to better, to better work. 
And so when I, I heard Jonathan Rogers talk about this one time, like making friends with the inner critic means you don't let those voices stop you from doing the work, mm-hmm. but those voices actually might nudge you toward, toward refining it in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of my, my <laughs> most of my inner, inner critic stuff is, is about who I am. Mm-hmm. It's not about the work. It's, 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 you have no, like I'll, I'll be, uh, standing backstage listening to the guy introduce me about to go on and I'll remember something that I did or said 30 years ago Mm. and break into a sweat Mm. and all I can think about is all the ways I ruined that person's life and um and it just comes out of nowhere and there was a time when there was a season when I I I stopped uh I dreaded mowing my lawn have you ever, ever told you this story I used to hate mowing my lawn we live in the country so it takes like four hours to on the lawnmower and if I'm in a place where I'm susceptible to those voices, then I, um, I can turn on the radio in the car. I can distract myself, whatever. But when I'm on the lawnmower, it's too loud to listen to music. I'm, it's me and my thoughts for four hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, more than once, uh, I would just, Jamie would look out the window and see me crying on the lawnmower. Mm. Because somewhere in that four hours, I had invented this massive story about how all my friends really hated me and, you know, I was, I was, you know, people's lives are better when I'm not around all this kind of crazy stuff. And, um, and then, uh, the time that where I kind of realized what was happening, I was supposed to have lunch with Eric Peters and Ben Shive after I mowed the lawn. And by the time I had finished mowing, I'd convinced myself that they hated me. And I walked in and I was crying. James was like, what's going on? I was like, well, I'm supposed to have lunch with these guys, but why would I bother? And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, they were with you yesterday. It was great. Wait, oh, you were mowing the lawn, weren't you? And I was kind of like, <laughs> yep. And so, so she was like, go to lunch. And I walked into the Las Palmas and they were sitting there at the table eating their chips and salsa. And the spell broke immediately. Like it was like, um, wow. they said, Andrew, they stood up and they hugged me. And I, I just sat there just kind of shell shocked. And I was like, I'm so sorry, you guys. But like I had, you know, when you tell them what's going on, they're like, why would you think that? You know? Um, so anyway, I, that's where it goes. It's always about me being a waste of space or me being, um, an annoyance to the people around me. That's that's where it goes. I can be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a decent songwriter, but I'm an annoying person. Mm. Does that make sense? Totally. So, and I, you know, for, for the people listening, that's not most of my life like that, but I can go there really easily. Like on it, when I'm healthy, I'm, I'm kind of okay. I can kind of take all that with a grain of salt, but I just don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly woe is meing. Cause there've been times when I've talked about this, that people come up and they're like, Oh, you know, you are special. And that's like the last thing I want to hear. Right. Um, uh, and, and sky's that way too. Jamie's a two, I think my wife. So she wants to fix us. And tell me if this jives with what you know of the Enneagram, but like Jamie wants to, to help us. Like if we tell her I'm having a bad day and I'm feeling all these things, she's like, she'll like she, her tendency is to tell us things to try to like counteract it. And when that happens, I kind of recoil and I'm like, no, 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 I don't need you to fix me. I'm just voicing this thing. And once I get it out of my system, I'm fine. The one of the worst things you can tell a four, uh, I tell this to parents of fours, like with the little ones, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be like, the, the thing you don't want to do is tell a four to cheer up. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It yep. is true because at yep. one level it devalues. Yeah. Those it invalidates the pain kind of. Yeah, that yeah. the four, you know, uh, and in a, in a strange way values. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's that Victor Hugo thing. I know I've quoted this many times on the show that melancholy is the happiness of being sad. <laughs> and so there is a happiness, too, that the four uh-huh. feels in that space. Yeah. That's almost impossible to explain to somebody who's not a four. You kind of just feel alive, like, like now the, my life has a direction. So uh, one thing I know about, about your history, we've spoken about it before, is you went through a three-year depression, mm-hmm. right, which was, was pretty intense. I uh, also uh, had about a five-year depression. I had just given up drinking. My dad died, got married. There was just a, I wasn't depressed about getting married, but there was just sure. a, a part of the stressors yeah. that were at play. I, I do think when I got married, though, one of the things I felt was sort of unworthy of it and also uh, the stability that it brought to my life actually frightened me a little hmm. bit, you know. Um, and uh, so anyhow, the I think lots of fours need to know that I do think of all the types, depression is, of course, a, a weak spot or a susceptibility around for fours. Talk a little bit about about that season for you. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, I turned forty. Uh-huh. I had just completed my then contract with my, with my record label, so I had to decide whether or not I was going to keep making music. Um, they had like offered me a new contract, and I was like, "Do I want to resign? What do I want to do here?" Uh, ben Shive and Andy Gullihorn, my dearest friends, who I traveled with for years, life kind of just shifted a little bit, and they weren't able to travel with me anymore. So I was on the road alone. Uh, had my twentieth wedding anniversary. Um, ha- my kids were moving out of the house like they were kind of like entering into adolescence which was triggering all these memories of my own adolescence mm. um, they were really painful that I had kind of put away so seeing my kids grow into pain was reminding me of my own pain there, were, there was a whole cocktail of, of stuff that like looking back I'm like oh of course and one of the things was uh, my album Light for the Lost Boy was about my children's adolescence and me kind of grieving um, the loss of innocence. And what I didn't know was that going writing those songs was like the, the, the warning signal that, hey, guess what? You're about to tip into a season, dude. Mm. And I didn't know it. I was like, well, this is just the songs that I'm writing right now. And then the album came out after I had like worked through writing all these songs about grieving f- for the loss of Eden and uh, my own children's leaving me, all these kind of things. Um, and then I went on the road and sang about it every night and was stirring up all of these memories every night for, you know, two, three months. And then, well, bam, I, I, I looked up and realized that I was in a thing and didn't know what to do with it. And then, uh, about a year and a half later, two years later was when I wrote the dark or the burning edge of dawn, which was about looking back. I see that life for the lost boy was autumn burning edge of dawn is spring. And in the middle was this dark season that I was in. And uh, what I noticed uh, just a few years ago, a year ago or so, was that I didn't know what to talk to people about now that I'm not in it anymore. Like I had had found some identity in being the guy who was going through a thing and was sad. And uh, and now that I, I feel like that's in the past now, you know, I'm not saying that I'm fine. But I kind of realized that, like, I have a hard time knowing who I am when I'm happy. Mm-hmm. The uh, one of the, I think the characteristic traits of a of a four is they actually become addicted to their own suffering. Yeah, I heard Eric Peters use that language, and I was like, yes, I know how that feels. Yes, yeah. 
and, and actually the suffering makes us feel special and unique uh-huh. and we uh, believe in a way that our suffering is deeper than other people's and I always have to remind myself even though it makes me feel ordinary mm. which is what we really hate uh, is hey you know what man your suffering is unique but it is not special mm. And if you, by believing that yours is deeper or more, inter, you know, or whatever, more poetic, more lyrical, right. mm-hmm. w- whatever, I'm actually devaluing other people's pain. Yeah. And I am actually separating myself from the people I want to belong to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that's the catch 22 of the four. Uh, we we want to belong, but we end up acting and viewing ourselves as so special and unique that it thinking that will help us belong. But actually what it does is it prevents us from belonging because mm-hmm. we've separated ourselves. Yeah. Which is not great. <laughs> yeah. It's, so uh, yeah. before we're going to end with a song, sure. But, but I guess the question I have for you is where as a four, are you finding resurrection in your life right now? Mm. Um, I'm finding it in, uh, okay, I was thinking about that when you were just telling that story. One of the things that was most helpful to me was um, creation and, uh, and I don't mean creativity, I mean God's creation. I mean, uh, I didn't, okay, let me go back. Maybe the story is helpful. Uh, there's this a chapter in my new book about the Warren, which is what we call the, the our little property in Nashville. And it's a few acres and, uh, um, and I, you know, once you move to some land, suddenly you, you start paying attention to creation in a new way. And I'd read enough Wendell Berry to where I was like, yeah, this is, this is a way that I want to live. I want to learn the names of the birds that come to the feeder and I want to know the names of the trees that are growing in my woods and, and pay attention. You know, I started keeping bees, that kind of stuff. And, um, uh, then I tipped into this season that I was in and, um, somewhere in there, this woman named Julie Whitmer, who's from Pennsylvania, who has an English gardener certificates, knows that I'm a little bit of an Anglophile. And, uh, she called one day, we didn't know her super well. Um, and she emailed me and said, Hey, I want to give your family a gift. Um, can I come spend the weekend at your house and design a 30 year garden plan for you and your family? And, uh, which I've heard after the fact costs thousands of dollars to get somebody to do this. And she just came and stayed with us and sent us in the mail, this beautiful schematic of our property and, uh, gave me something to do. So when I was in the middle of this season, um, I was like looking out my window and going, well, I guess I got to learn to build a dry stack stone wall and, um, and started building a wall and I started digging up grass and planting new things in the, in the soil. And, uh, and looking back um, that was one of the things that helped me the most. It was, um, it was the fact I, j- I just came across a poem and I, this, I didn't memorize it. I couldn't refine it actually, but, but by some poet that said the moon, something like the moonlight through the trees, the poets tell us is more than just moonlight through the trees. But since I do not know the moonlight through the trees is also just the moonlight through the trees. And it's this really simple poem that caught my attention because what I love about it is that like gardening is this beautiful metaphor for resurrection, right? You, you, uh, pull up weeds to make good things grow. You see the, 
the sadness of a winter garden when everything's dead and you look every day out the window for the daffodils coming up out of the ground and you see this visible sign of resurrection, this, uh, this metaphor that's playing out. But also, it's just the moonlight through the trees. Also, tulips are just amazing. You know, also, I get to put my blueberries in my oatmeal in the morning mm-hmm. that I pulled off of my blueberry bushes. So there's this wonderful realization that like the, the gardening pulled me out of was part of what I think helped me to understand the way God works, the slow, um, the slow turning of the earth that leads to resurrection and, and this realization that when you, when a gardener cuts open the earth, he's not doing it because he's mad or disappointed in the earth. A gardener is cutting open the earth because he's putting a better seed in the ground. Right. And so, uh, when I began to kind of think of God as the sower of seed and, my heart is like a field that was being furrowed all of a sudden there was there was once again meaning in the incarnation it was like one of the meanings of the incarnation is that he suffers with us and that there is resurrection after death and but also it's the actual world that we live in also i needed to get whatever stuff was in the dirt physically underneath my fingernails and i believe that my body was actually responding to something that was happening in my heart and vice versa. And so for me, it, it's, it's, it's getting away from the world of theory and it's not like my emotions aren't real, but, but, um, they're no more real than the stone wall that I was building mm-hmm. last month and, um, interacting with, with creation, um, and getting out of my head because there's a lot of cerebral work that is you're doing when you're a writer or a songwriter or a poet or whatever. Um, and, but I just firmly believe that being a gardener or a beekeeper or a, a hiker or a walker is going to make you better at the other thing too. Mm. Um, because you're moving around inside um, God's own imagination. Well, Andrew, I mean, come on. You, <laughs> you, uh, I mean, one of the things I love about conversations like this that are so, this is like one of those easy no-brainer heart-to-heart conversations which for me just feels so natural i don't even know there's a microphone uh, in the room um but you know um i feel and i say this in the morning when i take my walk um so grateful for the the people that god has brought into my life uh and i count you among those few that Whenever I leave being with you, whether it's, you know, uh, out at your place or in times like this, I feel like as though my soul is that much larger for hmm. for it. And I know it's almost impossible for you to take that in. <laughs> <laughs> you see my hands? I'm like yeah, squeezing I actually my... just saw your hand. I just saw you get all nervous. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't have said it. Uh, and uh, I hope that... Uh, You'll come back and well, yeah, close us with a song. Sure, yeah. What do you, what do you got? Uh, so I've got a song that I thought of as a pretty good Enneagram 4 song. I didn't write it, you know, thinking that, but uh, I think it is a, a good, it's something that I need to remind myself of a lot. Um, I wrote it um, because I got a bad review of one of my record, records on, on iTunes. And, uh, was beating myself up and then did the thing that I always do, which is I'm, I start by beating myself up 
and then I beat myself up for beating myself up. You yes. Know? And, uh, and it turned, turned in for, it started as, wow, that guy really hurt me too. And then it went, was, wow, I'm so pathetic that that guy hurt me. And then, gosh, I'm so pathetic for feeling so pathetic that that guy hurt me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I couldn't, I just couldn't get to sleep that night. And so I wrote this song to kind of fight back. So here you go. So easy to cash in these chips on my shoulder So easy to lose this old tongue like a tiger It's easy to let all this bitterness smolder Just to hide it away like a cigarette lighter It's easy to curse and to hurt and to hinder It's easy to not have the heart to remember That I am a priest and a prince the kingdom of God I've got voices that scream in my head like a siren fears that I feel in the night when I sleep stupid choices I made when I played in the mire like a kid in the mud on some dirty blind street I've got sorrow to spare I've got loneliness to Got blood on these hands that hold on to the truth That I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God Well I swore on the Bible to not tell a lie But I've lied and lied And I've crossed my heart and I've hoped to die And I've died and died but if it's true that you gathered my sin in your hand And you cast it as far as the east from the west If it's true that you put on the flesh of a man And you walked in my shoes through the shadow of death If it's true that you dwell in the halls of my heart Then I'm not just a fool with a fancy guitar No, I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom, I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. Andrew, thank you for being on Typology. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody, don't forget the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Mm-hmm.